Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. On November 7th, voters in the 1st Congressional District will decide whether Republican Gary Leonard or Democrat Gabe Amo will replace Congressman David Cicilline. So we're doing something a little different this week. We brought both candidates into the studio separately to explain where they stand on the major issues. Then we put together their responses so voters can easily compare and contrast. Let's get started after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. We're talking with the candidates for Rhode Island's first congressional district seat, Republican Gary Leonard and Democrat Gabe Amo. Welcome, Mr. Leonard. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Mr. Amo. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be here. To begin with, let's hear your elevator pitch on why first congressional district voters should choose you over your opponent, starting with Mr. Leonard. Why they should pick me is my my experience throughout 30 years in the Marine Corps. I uh, took an oath every three years when, or every time I got promoted to support and defend the Constitution. I absolutely believe it's the most magnificent document in the world, and I want to continue defending that document in Washington, D.C. When I'm out talking to voters, uh, what I'm hearing is a lot about the economy. I'm, I'm also hearing a lot about immigration, and I'm also hearing a lot about education. It seems that working families, middle-class families in the state of Rhode Island are suffering uh, this inflation is, is is killing people. Now with the rise in interest rates, it's it's a double whammy. What we need to do is be fighting down Washington, D.C. for working families and middle-class families. It's, it's what's fueled our country's growth uh, over its time, and we need to keep fighting for it. And that's what I intend to do. Mr. Amo, same question. I'm running for Congress because I believe that Rhode Islanders deserve a congressperson who is ready to hit the ground running on day one, who has recent relevant experience to not only contribute to the great work that our congressional delegation does, but to be part of the the big issues that we have today, whether it's strengthening Medicare or Social Security, making sure that we reduce gun violence, that we are investing in our climate resilience as we battle climate change. Of course, as we create opportunity for all, I want government to work. And frankly, the congressional Republicans in the House of Representatives are actually demonstrating a masterclass in how to not make government work for people. And that's what we need at the end of the day. And I 
have deep Rhode Island roots. I'm the son of Pawtucket. My dad owns a liquor store. My mom has been a nurse. And those values of hard work, resilience, and grit are what I want to demonstrate as Rhode Island's next congressperson. All eyes are now on the war in Israel and a new development. The Biden administration is pushing for Congress to take up an emergency assistance package that would pair support for Ukraine and Israel. Mr. Amo, do you support that? Why or why not? Yes, I definitely support a package that asserts America's role in resolving two of these major conflicts. In the case of Ukraine, uh, we know that this is a fight for democracy uh, writ large across the world. We cannot let the Russian aggression and desire to do whatever it, it, it will in Ukraine be something that, that is successful. We can't. It's existential for us. As it relates to Israel, we must stand strong and firm uh, with our ally, Israel. In addition, it is important that we are helping to facilitate at the world stage uh, humanitarian response that meets the moment because ultimately this is about Hamas's horrible and horrific attacks that have had no concern for folks in Israel or Palestinian people. And our response requires significant investment in Congress. I will act to support that package. However, what is clear here is we have politics domestically impeding our ability to act. We don't have a Republican Party in the U.S. House of Representatives that can even pick a leader. So we need to come together and make sure that we are able to have the United States exercise its responsibility to lead and make sure that our world is safe and free for everybody. Mr. Leonard, do you support the emergency assistance package that would pair support for Ukraine and Israel? Yes, I, we, sh we should. I would support that. What's going on in Israel, uh, we need to stand firm. They stood firm with us after our 9-11. This is equivalent to their 9-11. And if you were to take a ratio of the population, they lost 1,000 to 1,200 people in that single day, uh, worst single day since, since the Holocaust for the Jewish people. If you were to compare it to the U.S. population and you took it as a ratio, it'd be about forty to 50,000 people. That's enormous. Israel has every single right to defend itself. But I think our initial steps in Ukraine were the, were the right things. I think we all agree it was a violation of international law. Putin is not a good guy. He's a thug. But I do think the president of the United States owes us a few things. He owes us what our strategic goal is. It needs to be crystal clear. What's our exit strategy somewhere down the path? And, and, and with our allies, we need to continually put pressure that they're paying into Ukraine to the same rates that, that are agreed upon. And last one, and I saw it in Afghanistan, we absolutely need to have some type of auditing process in place so our money is not going into the hands of corrupt politicians uh, like I saw in Afghanistan. And, and there's multi-million dollar mansions today in the Persian Gulf because of money we put into Afghanistan went into went into crooks and, and, and criminals. What would you identify as the main thing the United States needs to do in the short term to address the immediate situation in Israel and in the long term? What we need to do is make sure that this war doesn't get enlarged, that it doesn't spread into Lebanon. And God forbid Iran does not throw its hat in the ring and start doing mischievous things. So uh, we need to be putting pressure on Iran and a lot more pressure and a lot more assertive than I think we've been 
through this administration, Iran's not a friend of the United States or a friend of Israel. Mr. Amo, same question for you. I think in the short term, it is making sure that Israel has the resources to combat Hamas. And that includes replenishing the Iron Dome. It includes making sure that the intelligence capacities to really dig into both the things that they may have missed, but also to make sure that we can attack strategically. Because as you've heard, many leaders uh, allude to, Senator Reid said it the other day, the urban warfare uh, is, is a very, very difficult way to battle. And so we need in the short term to make sure that we, we can support those efforts. It, that also requires us to support Israel in notifying and making sure that folks who live in the Gaza Strip are able to relocate. We cannot see more innocent lives lost. It is not uh, a win for anybody who is on the side of freedom and justice to have more innocent lives lost. So that's in the short term. In the long term, I think there is a consensus that we aren't at today on a two-state solution. That's the that's long term. We aren't there today. In an unprecedented development, Kevin McCarthy was ousted as House Speaker, and now Republicans have been unable to cobble together enough votes to elect a successor. Mr. Amo, what do you think should happen next? Uh, what I think is we have a Democratic House leader, Hakeem Jeffries, has offered an olive branch to say, let us have some sort of bipartisanship. Let us actually execute an agenda for the people of America, at minimum, showing them that we can pass a full year budget, right? These are simple things, or they used to be, that we can actually have a committee process that is is robust and represents both views. Because in effect, the Republicans have ceded their real responsibility to run government. They, they have the numbers, or they thought they did, to run a majority. But uh, effectively, they have shown that they aren't capable. Who would be the bipartisan choice? I can't pick their leader, they, I, but I do know the principles that they must exude. Whether it's Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, for me, the names don't matter. It's mm -hmm. the principles behind them. And so they should step up to the table. This is an opportunity. Democrats, frankly, are coming with great humility to say, let us do this together. And I think humble leadership is what this Congress requires rather than the egos that are driven by being on Fox News and being the loudest, that is driven by getting likes and followers on the artist formerly known as Twitter, uh, X. You know, they're driven not by trying to make people's lives better. Mr. Leonard, same question. Let's get a Speaker of the House. The time's ticking away on our uh, 45 days uh, continuing resolution. We need to get back to doing the people's business. Congress needs to get back to doing the people's business. Continuing to fund our government on continuing resolution is not the way to do business. This needs to be sorted out. We know in October that we go into a new fiscal year. It's the same date every year. Let's get the business done in terms of our budget and going through the process correctly. Uh, with continuing resolutions and omnibus bills, you're talking about a handful, maybe five or six Congress people that are very influential, maybe working with special interests, are jamming something together, dropping it on the other members of Congress, and you got 20, 24 hours to vote on it. That's not representing the people. This needs to be put out on the floor, needs to be debated, needs to go through the, the 12 different committees that deal with our budget. Representative Jim Jordan seems to be uh, trying to get together enough votes to become House Speaker now. Any thoughts on him? Jim Jordan, from what I've seen, is, is a fighter. He's a little bit of a pit bull, and I think we've all seen that. But I think uh, the Speaker, whether it's him or somebody else, you got to cobble together votes, and that's from both sides, to get the people's business done. 
We're not talking a massive majority in the, on the Republican side. Uh, we need to keep working together, and it, it seems to me the speaker's going to have to cross the aisle to cobble those votes together and make things happen and get, and get the people's business done. From where I sit, if, if I'm privileged to represent the state of Rhode Island in the people's seat, I'll fight every day for the people of Rhode Island. That's far more important to me than what my party might feel. Quite frankly, I'm tired of politicians going to Washington, D.C., rubber stamping the, what their party wants to do, or, or quite frankly, trying to advance their own careers. Some Republican presidential candidates and members of Congress support a national abortion ban. Mr. Leonard, would you favor that or not, and why? I, I would not vote in favor of abortion ban. Rhode Island codified in, in, into law in 2019. I think it's a 10th Amendment issue. I think it's a state's right issue. You know, we, we are a, one of these small states. I don't think we want states like California, Texas, where the supermajorities lay, deciding for us how we're going to govern ourselves. So I, I, will not, I wouldn't support something like that. I would tell you on abortion, just personally, I don't believe taxpayers ought to be funding it. To me, late-term partial birth abortions, are, to me, that's extreme. Here in Rhode Island, we passed, the, the state passed a bill last year to provide abortion coverage for Medicaid and for state employees. Would you have been against that? Again, I think it gets back to the point of, do you agree with tax-funded abortions? And I think that falls in that category, Ed. That said, and back to your national abortion ban, the people of Rhode Island have decided I think we got bigger fish to fry in Washington, D.C. And getting back to our economy and our immigration, we need to improve the education system. That's what I want to focus on. Mr. Amo, would you favor a national abortion ban? Absolutely not. It is no place for any lawmaker to be in the room for the most difficult of decisions between a woman and her doctor. And I just think it is anti the rhetoric of freedom, which we hear espoused often. It is actually the worst of what our government could be doing, which is controlling people's lives and bodies and not letting them live their authentic selves. President Biden recently gave a speech in Philadelphia about Bidenomics. Mr. Amo, what is your assessment of the Biden administration's economic policies? I look back to January 2021. Unemployment rate is high. We're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic with no end in sight. We have city, local governments across the country unable to fund themselves and looking at massive cliffs. Housing, a challenge that we continue to deal with here in Rhode Island, but, but folks receiving eviction notices and concerned about their futures. That's where we started now. We've got one of the lowest unemployment rates in our history, including here in Rhode Island. We have a manufacturing boom actually occurring in this country, in part because of one of our former governors, the Secretary of Commerce, having a semiconductor investment in this country so that we are not only having an economic future that is secure, but a national security future that's secure and decreasing our dependence on China for semiconductors. We are rebuilding roads and bridges. Remember when we had Infrastructure Week? We had it over and over and over again in the Trump administration. We got a bipartisan, and I played a role in this, a bipartisan infrastructure law. I was calling Republican mayors and governors across the country not only to advocate for the passage, but to also implement that great law. And I didn't even talk about COVID. I mean, we were at a state of despair and we have shots in arms across the country. And so I think when you look at Bidenomics as a whole, it's about growth. It's about building for the future. We may not experience everything right away. You know, if you are rebuilding roads and bridges, that's not going to happen in six months time. We have 
great work to do, of course, to make sure that costs come down. And you see inflation is decreasing, but it's not fast enough. Not everybody's feeling it. And we need to make sure that the the Bidenomics that we talk about, but the economic recovery as a whole, as a whole is felt. But, you know, you, you talk to economists today, they predict have predicted a recession at month over month over month. And now they're saying, well, maybe it's a soft landing. Mr. Leonard, what's your assessment of the Biden administration's economic policies? There's some policies that I think that have been passed through Congress that make sense. The CHIPS bill, for example, we do need to bring back those strategic manufacturing hubs back to the United States. I think we need to go a little further in that aspect. I don't think the Inflation Reduction Act was was an inflation reducer. I do think we pumped way too much money into our economy. That's what's caused this inflation. And I think we need to take some common sense approaches, figure out how to get inflation under control. And I will tell you, one of the ways we do it, Ed, is, is we need to pursue an energy independence policy in the United States. That needs to change, and I think it produces a lot more jobs. It gets our GDP GDP rate up, which solves a lot of problems with our federal budget. The Biden administration has moved to use funds appropriated during the Trump administration to allow for 20 miles of additional border wall along the south of Texas. Mr. Leonard, was that the right decision? Why or why not? Took the president two and a half years to figure this out. We need to continue that. I do think there needs to be access points in that, passage points. Uh, we do have a, uh, a worker shortage, I believe, in the United States, but I think it needs to be done in a, in a pragmatic way. We've created such a mess here right now with, with the open border policy that the president supported when he first came in. I don't know how you assimilate that many people that quickly. I think there's states like ours that I think are always having some budget problems that it's difficult to financially absorb that type of growth. To keep your economy rolling, you do do need to have population growth. I think every economist would tell you that, Uh, but we need to do it in a pragmatic way. I'll tell you one other thing, Ed. Somewhere along the way, there there needs to be some type of path to citizenship. But but, but when I'm out walking and meeting voters, I hear stories like this. Met a man immigrated to this country legally 20 years ago. His son has already served in the United States Marine Corps. And he's still working and trying to become a U.S. citizen, loves this country, wants to be a U.S. citizen. The path to citizenship, we need to solve that first with the folks that came here legally. Mr. Amo, was it the right decision to allow for 20 miles of additional border wall along the south of Texas? Well, the president communicated that the funds have been appropriated. He's obligated to move forward with those projects. I think when we look at our border and we look at border security, there are a range of tactics that we have to take to look at the whole of our immigration system. If you just focus on one part of the problem, you're going to have a problem elsewhere. It's a little bit of whack-a-mole as it comes to the immigration uh, situation in this country. So, you know, we have to deal with the root causes and the regions, make sure that folks don't find refuge in simply fleeing and coming here because we actually, you know, don't have, in large part because of Republicans in Congress, don't have an orderly system, whether it's funding immigration courts, whether it's going beyond the temporary parolee statuses that people have from various countries. That can be done on some of that on the executive level, but it requires Congress to act as well. Moreover, we need to look at work authorization. You talk to any employer across this state, across the other states in our country, they say that there are labor supply challenges. 
this is an opportunity. But again, it requires a comprehensive solution. And just to be sure, you, you think that was the right decision on those 20 miles of wall. You know, the administration said we were required to by law, but they could have filed a lawsuit. They could have challenged it for years to come. I think what we need less of is hyper litigation of, of every aspect of it. We know it's border security as a whole is one thing that we have to do. Uh, and so the president is is looking at that, but we have to do more. It is not just building walls. You're both running for the congressional seat that Democrat David Cicilline held for 12 years. He has said that he's counting on former colleagues to push for some of his legislative priorities. One was an assault weapons ban, which would prohibit the sale of certain semi-automatic weapons. Do you support that? Why or why not? Mr. Amo, let's start with you. I support an assault weapons ban. I think the legislation, as I've seen it, is pretty focused on removing something that we know inflicts a lot of harm on people's lives. We know it. We see it over and over again. When I was at the White House as the Deputy Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, I was calling a mayor very often to not only express condolences, not only to help a community heal, but to help to get federal resources. But I would tell you, time after time again, they said, get rid of assault weapons. I'm hearing this from people who are in the community. So I would fight vigorously to keep Congressman Cicilline's legacy going on that issue. Mr. Leonard, do you support the assault weapons ban? I took an oath every time I was promoted, at, and that was to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and that includes all our civil liberties, which is which includes the Second Amendment. That said, I have four kids. They're beyond school years now, but uh, I, I don't want to be a parent that's worried sending my kid to school. So I will work with both parties to, to come up with sensible solutions that, one, protect our civil liberties and not penalize people that do things right, law-abiding citizens, but also protect our children. And I don't know if it's a resource issue, and it may be a resource issue, and maybe we get the resources to provide those protections, but I also think we got a mental health crisis in this country. If, if the assault weapons ban uh, came before you in the House, how would you vote? First of all, I make sure that we're talking about weapons. I've been around uh, firearms my entire life. I've had my hunting license since I was 12. My father never let me have a BB gun because he thought I'd learn bad practices that way. Sure. So that bill, you'd be against that then? I, 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 I would. I, I, it, it, Ed, I, I would I absolutely work across party lines to try to try to figure out what's going on in our country because we don't want to see some, these horrific things that are taking place. I've never met a gun that shot itself. People kill people, and let's not lose that in this discussion. In New Hampshire, a 15-year-old named Quinn Mitchell recently asked Governor DeSantis a question that I'll pose to the both of you. Do you believe that former President Trump violated the peaceful transfer of power, a key principle of American democracy that we must uphold? Mr. Leonard? Ed, I appreciate the the question. I think we as a nation is under our Constitution have the right to protest. What happened on January 6th went well beyond a protest for the folks on the government side, law enforcement officers that were trying to protect the Capitol that day. They were injured. Those folks that injured them ought to be held accountable. At the end of the day, the role of the president was passed from one president to the other. We ought not to forget that. Yeah, to his question, though, do you think Trump violated the peaceful transfer of power. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that Biden's the president, he's a duly elected president, and uh, he became the president on the 20th of January. I, I know President Trump is facing a series of, of 
court dates coming up. Again, going back to the Constitution, he has every he has every right to defend himself in front of a jury of his peers. And for me to take a look at what the outcome of that would be would be unfair because I don't have a crystal ball. Mr. Ama, do you believe that former President Trump violated the peaceful transfer of power? Yes, he did. And he, and he encouraged what was an insurrection that we all watched from our living rooms. You know, I was working on the Biden-Harris transition, getting ready to go into government. We heard chatter of intransigence from the Trump campaign and also the administration around actually would they ever actually concede. And I didn't think it would happen. But then we what we witnessed it was one of the saddest days in American history, and we should never repeat it. That's why his campaign is an existential threat to our democracy. And anybody who cannot communicate clearly about that has invalidated their role and responsibility in making our government work. Republican Gary Leonard and Democrat Gabe Amo, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the questions. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.